Awake in the Dream Radio with Laura Eisenhower and Dr. Dream. Raising your frequency and expanding your consciousness one guest at a time. Welcome, everyone. This is Awake in the Dream Radio, and I am your co-host, Dr. Dream, and my most incredible, most amazing, uh, just the bright light of my life and of this show, our other co-host. Laura Eisenhower. Wow, you're so sweet. Thank you. Great to be here. Hello, everybody. Welcome tonight. Well, an awesome show. I wanted to be extra sweet at the beginning of tonight's show. Just it's it's been has it been a long week? Is it just me or 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 have we had an awful lot going on in the last since the last show? I yeah, I mean, I've been working <laughs> nonstop. Um I don't have much time to even go to the bathroom it feels like. So, yeah, it's been really intense. How has it been for you? Well, let's talk about your stuff before we start diving into my stuff. You have, you know, I'm used to seeing you um, really immerse yourself in research before um, before you give any presentation. Um, but this is kind of a special case. This is not about actually any one particular presentation. Laura, tell us, what are you working on? Well, I just, too, I mean, it's 2013, and um, most of my stuff um, has been related to the 2012 December 21st date. I mean, everything's sort of leading up to it as far as the Venus transits and, uh, you know, just the path that we're all on and just what's necessary and what the missing links are. And we've crossed over December 21st, and um, now I just am ready to shed light on, you know, just everything on the deepest level, um, connecting these just energies to the core of who we are um, so that we can understand what we're playing with, what we're dealing with and what the source of it is, where it originates um, to levels that are so multifaceted and multidimensional ranging from physics to science, to mythology, to our galactic history um, and seeing these important dots that need to be connected that, uh, you know, will really assist in unifying our collective consciousness because really that's where we're feeling the brunt of everything in the past. Um, if we were to reset everything to now, um, we would recognize that all these energies are just around us and it's up to us to work with them within to, you know, emit a different frequency that is based on the resolution and the harmonizing of so many split forces. So it's almost hard to even articulate. And I, and I could see when I was attempting to how much I could easily just whoo, uh, lose myself in it. So yeah, um, it's just a lot. Uh, and it's just a whole nother level. And it's just being urgently called to me uh, to reveal. Um, and it's just based on things, you know, 2013 and beyond, but oh my gosh, digging all the way to the beginning um, to really understand just whew, all of it. Uh, uh, to the best that I can really to just awaken the self to just really point a person in the direction of where they can best transform and transmute and really come to life. Uh, not so much to create fixed beliefs, but to create more of an, an experience. 
Well, I have to tell you that it is a treat for me to watch the process. It is not a treat in the sense that, like, it's a beautiful thing to watch because you are going through so much, and it's just, it, it's like taking all of your being, it seems, to um, process, assimilate, and then jump to the next, you know, like leap to the next way to connect all the information. And this is what you do so masterfully at all the presentations that you do in the conferences and everything else. So XO University is certainly, um, you know, well, in my book, darn lucky to have you signed on to this project. It's very exciting. What's the URL uh, so people can get some more info. Oh gosh, I don't know it offhand. I think if it's they maybe if they type in XO XO University EXO University, you'll find all the information. And um, it's it's important. It's good. And um, take it from me, folks. It is the leading edge, cutting edge thought. Um, and it's all wrapped up in everything to do with um, with Laura's mission here. So um, you're not going to want to miss this. <sighs> <laughs> what about you? How's your week been? You know, <clears throat> it's not that <clears throat> my week's been a little um, a little hectic this last week, and it's it it's been kind of wild. And I found myself walking into situations that have the potential to be quite dramatic for my clients and what we're doing ever so masterfully and I have to just you know all honor and respect my clients is really shifting the paradigm down at the ground level of 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 you know the of these people's experiences and and it's not going into the drama again it's not the most comfortable experiences to be going through, but this is part of everyone's process and journey. But but what's been the silver lining, I guess, for me in the last week is that it hasn't dipped energetically into the, you know, traumatic sort of drama level that these particular situations, you know, could involve um, the, someone in a hospital and, and just some other things very heavy energies. But um, what's encouraging to me is is how people are stepping up um, to move through it. And I'm seeing it with, with our other clients also. We did an amazing, um, and when I say amazing, that's just how I felt in the session, joint session yesterday with someone. Um, God, I love those. And and so, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a wild ride right now. I mean, it's, um, I'm glad I put my seatbelt on. Yeah, that's why I feel like, you know, I'm 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 sort of getting pulled into some sort of uh, energetic, on a collective, like conscious and unconscious level, to just kind of like puke it all up to just purge <laughs> it. Because, you know, it's like kind of like that's how to work energy is just to assist Mother Earth and whatever humanity's holding on to, and uh, and then also all the electrical mind control like technological alien intrusion stuff, and uh, that's. Uh, you know, showing up for people in their their world and their existence, but we got to dig real deep in order to kind of yank the roots, yank the weeds, and um, and so it's great that people are being encouraged to do that. While you know, a lot of work is getting unearthed to assist the process from a lot of people right now. There's just a lot going on this year for events and conferences, and um, I'm certainly feeling like the cosmic janitor again. I know Lisa Renee has used that term, um, 
but it's exciting because, you know, it's uh, it's what our process is. Yeah. Um, I just had a, a funny image of you as sort of the, the cosmic mother penguin sort of um, – uh, masticating and then regurgitating everything for the rest of us. <laughs> but yeah, it, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's kind of an interesting image, but I mean, the the aspect of what you do making um, this information palatable to us and everything, but the message is, you know, of course, bigger than you, bigger than, than us, and, and it's really clear that it's this is the time people step up. Step up now, drop the baggage, drop the bullshit, and just step into this game. You came here to play this with all of us. If you find yourself sitting on the sidelines, you know, please jump in. We we need all the help we can get. The you know the the process um, is not over. And there's uh you know big big energetics that that need the help of more people from the collective. So. Yeah, yep. I mean, there's only a window period where the ascension is possible. Um, I don't want to say anything is fixed because reality is fluid, of course, but, you know, till 2017, this is only three years. And we need to reach a certain frequency. We need to, you know, upgrade our DNA to a certain level to even be able to have this happen. And that's why each one of us is important. Um, I mean, it's really crucial. So, uh, that's what's great about unearthing information. That's what's great about people being in their processes and being honest about them and talking them out and um, clearing themselves. We're all doing it collectively, but it, it's like there's there there is no room to sit on the sidelines, no matter who we are. And 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 stepping up just means stepping up to the best of who you are, being true to yourself. And uh, doesn't mean that you have to go out of your way to force yourself to do something to feel you have a purpose. But it's just you know, being good to yourself, being in that zero energy of nothingness and freedom while having ultimate integrity and learning the lessons of, you know, what the spirit path is about to be really aligned to source right now, which is everything. Yeah, that is. So, Laura, I'm just sitting on the edge of my seat. What, you know, I I need to hear what's coming up, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> hit us up for the next week or something. Tell us what's happening, what we can expect. Um, it just so assists us all in navigating um, this terrain. Well, it's kind of funny um, because today's Tuesday, so I might as well start with today. Uh, Mars and Chiron um, align in Pisces. It's the wounded healer. And basically uh, it puts us in touch with where we might let our fears get in the way of our forward motion, basically. And that's kind of funny because I'm kind of having one of those sorted days. I don't know if the word would be fear, but um, just moving through a lot of stuff, um, especially, you know, our fears about whether or not we're going to be supported by the universe, by our loved ones, by just uh, survival in general. Can we pay the bills? You know, all these questions are coming up uh, on a day like today. And what happens with Chiron is that we kind of get dragged back into uh, traumatic events, uh, maybe in past lives or in this particular life that sort of give us that terror of, oh, my gosh, it didn't happen then, so, you know, how how can I trust that it, it can happen again or happen at all? Um, so it takes just radical trust hmm. uh, to just be able to um, kind of get through this hump. And then by the end of the week, we should find that the part of us that we need to heal most is sort of emerging this divine light and just amazing energy of, you know, where the source from within is showing up and saying, you know, don't worry about support when it's within, and the more we can tap into that, the more we can just be willing to drop the stuff, any kind of victim energy, and step into just the warrior self on a spiritual level, 
where we're not going to let anything take us away from this path, um, we'll start to find that the concerns and the fears or wherever we're blocked on any level starts to kind of open up into just a new energetic that is a lot more creative and magical and uh, just filled with, you know, the things that we were looking for early in the week, which is actually today. Um, so no matter how bad it is today, you'll find maybe by the end of the week that it all turns out really, really uh, quite well. But, um, you know, go real deep uh, because that inner support will start to manifest more outer support. <laughs> I love it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so... <clears throat> Oh, this and the is, waters of Pisces. Oh, swimming in the waters. Lots of water stuff happening with Pisces. Uh, mystical stuff. Meditation is really important. Going real deep. Anyway, sorry. I had to just throw that in. What no, no, say? no. That was good. And the whole year is, you know, the, the we just entered the year of the snake, and it's the water snake. And yeah. so um, lots to pay attention with that. It has to do with um, some of what you just talked about, facing our fears, you know, really addressing things head on. Um Abundance. The water snake is about abundance, also. So um, definitely some good things in store. Yeah. But um, let's not go too far off tangent. We've got a great show tonight. Yes, we do. Uh, we have we uh, Harry Drew. And um, yes, we do. Oh boy, it is really our honor this evening. Uh, to introduce to all of you Harry Drew. Um, Harry is a former director and curator of museums of history, anthropology, and archaeology, as well as a cultural resource specialist regarding ancient civilizations. Um, he's a fascinating gentleman. He has dedicated six years of professional research and field work um, that that led to the discovery of the 1953 Kingman UFO landing site, um, which he found undisturbed. He's going to tell us all about that, um, just the way the Air Force left the site 60 years before. Um, this is really fascinating information, because without the Kingman UFO, um, there'd be no Area 51 story that, that we know about today. Uh, since making his discoveries, uh, Drew is frequently visited by UFOs at his desert home in Arizona. Um, one of the things that really stands out um, about Harry is that his work on the Kingman UFOs is so highly regarded and recommended by professionals associated with the UFO and the scientific investigation communities. Um, we don't find this so much. And so um, Harry has definitely raised the bar on um, what it means to to share at that level and to do just exhaustive um, research. And um, we're just thrilled to have you on the show with us today. Harry, are you, are you right there with us? I am, Dr. Drain. Thank you very much. Hello, Harry. Very nice to have you on Hi. the show. <laughs> Hi, Laura. It's good to be here. Good to hear you. Yeah. Well, I, I got the pleasure of meeting you in person, and I have to say you told me some very fascinating stories, and we're so excited to have you here. So I just want to start off asking you a little bit about your background and how you first came into this field that moved you in the direction of the field work uh, that led to your discoveries. Well, as Dr. Dream mentioned, I am a former museum director and curator for museums of history, anthropology, and archaeology, and all of that and everything that that means, which was 
means professional, it's a science. And I moved to Kingland, Arizona about 11 years ago or 12. And I've heard this story about Kingland crashes. And I had an association with the UFO community uh, at first indirectly beginning at age six when I saw my first UFO with my father. And I knew and can remember very clearly that that wasn't any kind of airplane or anything I had ever seen before. And later, of course, I realized what it was was an unidentified flying object more in the ET area. But as years passed and I got down to the Kingman area, we're very close to the Colorado River. Luckily for me, 25 miles to the river, as we call it. And Laughlin, Nevada, where the International UFO Congress and Film Festival occurred every year under the headmaster of the International UFO Conference, IUFOC, Bob Brown. And so I met Bob Brown. We became and are fast friends. And I served as the official photographer for the IUFOC. And I was around everyone who is in the UFO and paranormal type of industry by virtue of coming to speak at this annual event. So I have some background in it, plus I have since I was six seen way too many UFOs, and it's not like a dream, but it was a problem because of my profession. I could not speak about it, and one time during my career, um, uh, something got out, I don't know how, and it was in regard to a very large UFO coming from the direction of Mount Shasta going north, Mount Shasta, California, headed north, and I saw it about 35 miles away at nighttime while out with the sun to look at the moon, and I had a telescope set up, and I was using the spotting scope, and I stood up to let him look, and I noticed the ground shadow from the moon wasn't where it was, and there was another light. And this thing went by. We were on the side of the mountain. went by at the same level we were. It illuminated everything around it as it went, and it caused the street lights in the town below to go out as it went by. And I talked, patched through to the Air Force Base, went down to a regular phone then, and they had shut down what was called Haymaker Mountain Radar, and they patched me through to Seattle. And I thought it was going to crash. This thing from space was going to crash around Diamond Lake, Oregon. And that's when the man on the PIP scope in Seattle said it just passed Diamond Lake. And then that call was interrupted by a supervisor who came on and asked what was going on, and I told him, and he hung up on me. <laughs> that got in the national news. Yeah. It got in the national news and my name was in it. And it was like bad, bad, bad because within the more strict area of science, um, that's considered like you're a wacko. And, and I'm going to talk about that because that all comes from a dedicated effort since uh, January 1953 from the Robertson's panel that was set up officially but unofficially by Central Intelligence to meet and come up with a plan of how to suppress 
and divert UFO report information and to make it a laughing matter rather than to pay any attention to it because it was deemed a national security issue. <laughs> so, yeah. so here, here's here's what I want to know. Building building okay. up to you sharing the real truth about the Kingman UFO, um, share with us, if you will, what was not the real truth. What was the official story? Um, of what happened there from from the Air Force, and then also, why was your attention drawn to this matter? So, just a sort of two part question there. Okay, I'm going to start with the second half first, and that the reason I did anything is that after hearing about this, I made the mistake of going online to look at some of the stories about the Kingman UFO crash as it was designated and I didn't spend a lot of time after the third or fourth diametrically opposed story so I decided because of my professional background at getting at the truth as an investigative researcher that I was going to find out if in fact there had ever been a Kingman crash or not because it couldn't be all of the different ways that were being claimed by people that I brand as exaggerators. And sometimes I think that's being kind. So anyhow, with that in mind, I set out uh, to begin the, the methodology and the standard protocols that are used as a historian to investigate this by going to places like accredited research libraries, government files and records, wherever I can obtain them, uh, I obtained an annotated report that was made by a former and uh, still living very reputable man by the name of Raymond Fowler, who lives back east in Massachusetts, who had interviewed a man claiming to be a scientist, in fact he was, who was taken from Frenchman Flats and the atomic bomb blast area and flown from Indian Springs Air Force Base to Phoenix to come out to the Kingman area with 39 other scientists and specialists to look at what they were told was a super secret Air Force experimental airplane. What had happened in reality is that four days before that, and, and by the way, that was 21 May 1953, mm -hmm. four days before that, I find out from the last surviving member of the U.S. Air Force recovery team on this, that they arrived two hours after the craft went down on May 18th, 1953, and four alien crew members were standing outside of the ship the ship had la had made a forced landing. It wasn't damaged, didn't have any problems, and that's where um, I can give you some examples and your listeners. Some of the stories that go around about why the craft went down. This is why I started looking seriously, and I'll give you some right now. There's one person. These are noted people within the, the UFO community. It's just someone sitting at home just kind of daydreaming. One insisted it was from EMP effects from the atomic bomb blast test upshot knothole in Nevada. And I knew right away that because they're virtually ground bursts 
of the atomic bombs that were being detonated and the distance from Frenchman Flats to Kingman area and the mountain ranges in between, it would not permit EMP to have any effect. The second thing was that the craft, the UFOs, there were three, went down on the wrong days pertaining to the atomic bomb blast. So you can't have the blast happen and the UFO go down the day before, that kind of thing. <laughs> Another one is the story going around, including on a, on a recent panel uh, toward the end of last year, that the UFOs were not the product uh, of aliens, but were actually Japanese World War II arms development, which was not the case. Um, and, there's, and there's another claim the UFOs were shot down by surface-to-air missiles. That's not the case, and it's very easy to say why. There was no military presence in Kingman, Arizona, after August 1945. The UFO landing and two crashes happened in May 1953. There was for some time on a highly visible web page for everyone that's in, involved in UFO paranormal things where they talked about having new information on the Kingman crash, which was a landing for the one that went to Area 51, and that they closed off Highway 40 from Bar from Kingman, Arizona, all the way to Barstow. It's about 235 miles for four days to move the UFO across the road. Unfortunately, Highway 40 wouldn't be built for 31 more years, so there was a problem there. These are actual claims. You can find them on the Internet even now. And one fellow who is one of the most boisterous of the exaggerators talked about he do, supposedly did research, which the people in my industry call sloppy scholarship, because I don't think he ever left the house. But he said, I checked newspapers for 100 miles around Kingman in all directions, even Las Vegas, and never found anything. And then he says, and remember, if a UFO crash isn't in the newspaper, it never happened. <laughs> and it's... <laughs> <laughs> True statement. He even argued about the the witness by the name of Arthur Stansel, S-T-A-N-S-E-L. He even argued about Stansel, the witness who was from the Frenchman Flats that was interviewed by Raymond Fowler, that Stansel was spelling his name wrong. And I thought, that's rather odd, that the, the man would not know how to spell his own last name. Right. And then the last story I'll show, if you have the time here, is the same individual and another UFO person who picked it up, and then they put a little spin on it, kind of makes it their story. And why I'm saying all this is because truth really matters. It really does. Or we're never going to, we'll never have any stability within the UFO community, maybe even the paranormal community, and that. That I'm not addressing because it makes it where you have nothing tangible in hand. There's no vetting or peer review in this industry. So I'm, I'm sort of being that in ways, and it's why part of it is six years I've invested up my time and my funds to do this. And the last 
for you has been analysis. If if I can tear it up, somebody else can. Anyway, the last thing from the same individual of the newspaper stories and the same individual that said that the witness didn't know how to spell his last name right also said that there was an Air Force man who was in the tower that night or at night, and he saw on the PIP, the radar scope, you see the little blip, and a bogey shows up as this thing circles on a screen, and he saw the UFO, and he looked out through the windows of the tower in the dark night sky, and he saw the flash of it hit the ground. And that was supposed to have happened in 1953, and at the Kingman crash. The problems with that are that the date that was listed was wrong, the tower was stripped of all of its gear, including the PIP screens, in July of 1945, stripped out by the military and destroyed before they left. And there was no military presence at Kingman Airport in 1953, and there was no equipment in the old military tower because it had been destroyed eight years before. So it actually gives credence to, to a story about an unidentified person who died in Vietnam, supposedly, before they could tell their story about something that if they were doing simple checking would have found out it was impossible. You cannot, you cannot be in a tower with no equipment eight years after it was all removed and destroyed and, and the military gone. So there's, it's kind of simplistic in some ways. There's other stories uh, it was hit by lightning, and there was an ambassador that was an alien that survived. They were on the way to Los Alamos, and, of course, the craft was going south, not east. If it was here, it would have to go east to go to Los Alamos, New Mexico. Mm -hmm. I mean, so there's all kinds of problems. So that's the kind of thing that is still out there on the Internet, and when individuals sit in their chair behind a, a PC and monitor and think that they're looking at the real deal, they are not. And it brings a question to me, in my mind, what does that mean for the earlier crashes uh, or, or later crashes or, or landings that were witnessed to some degree or another and then discounted as not real? I really wonder because I found a lot of trouble with this. Right. Well, can you can you shed some light on what's going on with Area 51 and how um, you know this is all connected to the story? Ah, <clears throat> very good, Laura. There are people who say uh, I believe in Area 51, but I don't believe the Kingman crash ever happened or the Kingman UFO ever existed. The Kingman UFO landed. It was undamaged, described by the principal, one of the principal witnesses as not even having a scratch on it. It was touched, and not only seen and inspected, it was touched by at least four people that I'm aware of. I have three of them on video. One uh, last interview I did with the last re recovery member died a year after my interview with him. They never met each other. They didn't know each other. 
They were at the site, uh, the ones that were brought in by bus, there were 20 MPs there and their names were called and they were escorted by an MP to the very site they were to examine, determine in advance by the Air Force, whoever was ahead of the project there, so that they only got to look at the area that was of interest. They had nothing in Kingman to move the craft with. You remember I said there was no military presence. Mm -hmm. Luckily, Fort Irwin, or then called Camp Irwin in California, had just switched over to armor. So they brought in an M25 tank transporter and a whole bunch of other heavy-duty equipment. They loaded this thing up in the middle of the night, early, early hours of the 22nd of May, 1953, and they started off for Groom Lake. I know exactly the way they went. I know how they got across the Colorado River with it because they couldn't cross the dam. It was too wide. And it went from there to Groom Lake, which had been handed over. The Air Force, Army Air Force Base there had been handed over as an extension to Edwards Air Force Base in 1951. And under the black budget they had at the time, they were immediately, if not sooner than the time it was handed over, making upgrades and changes so that it would become the extension that it still is of Edwards Air Force Base. That means that the Kingman craft was the first one there. It was also the one, one of the witnesses that I have on uh, two DVDs, well, one's a presentation I made, the other is a, a DVD that I've done uh, uh, that's an overview of the whole thing. One of the witnesses was an engineer who was involved with it in, in the reverse engineering tests that were done. So we're talking two physicists, and an engineer and an Air Force man who actually touched this craft, 42 eyewitnesses total to the landing and crashes at Kingman, Old Town, Old Resident, Kingman Knights. Harry, how can people still not believe this, and how come um, with all this detail and everything and, and these numbers of people, the 42 witnesses and everything, how come the, how come the truth just isn't, readily available or readily acceptable or just give us some insight on what you found digging in so much to all this. Two of the reasons why this remained bottled up. One is the Kingman, the residents of Old Town Kingman, and you think about it as like Mayberry USA, the old TV series, there were 3,500 people in Kingman, Arizona. The predominant industry was mining with some secondary logging while it was still available on the Hualapai Mountain, which was 8,266 feet. It's about 16 miles or so from Kingman, Old Town Kingman. And they were under basically martial law the entire period of World War II, and the Air Force, when they went and raised a finger to their lips and went, shush, no matter if they had had six UFOs land in town, they would have never said a word. They had blackout the whole nine yards here. They were very, very concerned. And that transitioned for them with that mentality along with many of them were related so their family, and they had an unwritten law 
that they just don't talk to outsiders about these things. And I won't mention any names, but I have, as a result, uncovered a case where one one young woman who was a member of the the general large family that predominates the area did speak to some outsiders to a degree, and she was ostracized by the family because it's forbidden. It was taboo to do that. And then came the Cold War with the beginning of the Korean War, and Kingman became a site for three experimental radar, and they were set up conveniently enough for them maybe, but not very convenient for ET craft. It was set up in a triangular configuration, so we had like the Kingman radar triangle right out and the flight path where the UFOs had been going north and south, mm-hmm. overpowered with no no technology to measure what the what the power was out in the center of this triangle. They had no way to gauge it. They just did it. They were trying to get more mileage, distance. Radar was only 25 miles as far as it could see, only 25 miles, ground radar, and they were trying to make it go 150 miles because we were worried the Russians were going to bring the bomb of their building with an atomic bomb. So that was going on. Uh, to give, um, And so everybody was still in this World War II almost martial law mentality. And when I say there were radar operators here, that was a handful of people some technicians and radar operators, two portable units, and one that was uh, anchored at what is called Radar Hill. There is stuff still there right now, and it's right in the middle of Old Town. How many people suffered brain tumors and other things later? Who knows? Because right. it's smack in town. So that's, that's the local issue. They don't say it. You know, they don't say now to outsiders. They just don't. I sit with old-timers here with all due respect, and, and they've accepted me a great uh, a great deal, enough to warn me about some places not to go because three people that went there already died, and two people later went who are still missing. So I may not go there. The next thing was, coincidentally, and it was January 1953, the same year the craft went down, just a few months before, the Robinson panel was formed by, well, actually the Intelligence Advisory Committee in December of 1952. There were so many sightings in the United States in 1952, including right over the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., in the daytime. There was a big panic, and the Air Force internally and a communication, a letter inside the Pentagon from one department to another. And this is also on, on the jacket of one of Dr. Greer's books. Is a, of course, it's smaller because it's you know a photo that fits amongst others on a, a cover of a book. But it's the same letter that uh, Dr. Greer also has that. And it's from one Air Force department to another, and they're saying, they're also, they're also saying, do you think that that the UFOs may be going down because of our radar. I thought I would throw that in because they didn't know, but they accepted the fact that the UFOs weren't their planes. Right, they were talking right. about them as, yeah, as unidentified flying objects. And so there was the concern about hysteria and panic. And basically, I think it had more to do with the concern was that they didn't want the American public to realize that this was out of control. 
and they didn't know what was going on and had no way to combat it, and they were outgunned probably if these things came from space or passed from another dimension or however they traveled and suddenly appear from nowhere. Right. So the Intelligence Advisory Committee, uh, in behest of the Central Intelligence Agency, and this is a declassified document, multiple pages, uh, formed what was called the Robertson Panel, which was a group of scientists, and they met for a very short period of time, and they were given two films, the best films that Project Blue Book had to examine, along with some other evidence, and which, by the way, they refused to look at because it was raw footage. So the scientists refused to even look at Project Blue Book stuff. So what the recommendation was that from the Robertson panel, which is also called the Durant Report, and it was a sitting member on the committee or the commission who was from Central Intelligence. Durant was CIA. Mm-hmm. And he wrote the report, and basically they summed up by saying that they need to begin a public education campaign to reduce public interest in the subject, minimizing the risk, they they said, of air, def- air defense systems and to basically brand anyone that was reporting this as having a loose screw in their head, and suggestions were to use psychologists and psychiatrists, Disney industries to produce animated cartoons about it, and this type of thing. It's pretty extensive as to the methodology, and I thought one of the things that was of particular interest to me was that anyone who is out there doing stuff talking about UFOs, like me, by, or groups should be monitored because they may be a detriment to national security. Right now, Harry, I, I just, your, I just a quick, your answer. Quick, yeah. quick follow up. Um, I understand how um, the military and the government would go out of their way not to um, to let the truth out. I'm a little I'm I'm interested in just a little more clarity on the residents of Kingman. Do you think that they kept quiet because of um at that time 1950s um at because of loyalty to the military and the government or was it fear because I mean these days anything happens and you know we're all just ready to shout it out and 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 spread the spread the word. Um what do you think it was in 1953? According to an aviation, current aviation historian, well, first off, a Kingmanite who is an aviation historian and museum curator, living, I have interviewed, who is one of the relatives of all of these, starting off with a rancher that came up the Big Sandy in 1882 and settled in what is... Uh, the Valley, the Hualapai, that's H-U-A-P-A-L-A-I, Hualapai Valley below Hualapai Mountain. And from from that rancher who actually saw the Red Lake Futank UFO crash, along with 11 other people, 
they they keep secrets and they kept secrets about all of these things because of their patriotism and because they were ordered to at the time. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you that someone in, in one of the agencies, mainly in government, who works here now, who is a relative, told me to my face that it's still this way, that they will not pass on these things because they keep secrets about a lot of things. This is like their area, and they have ownership by virtue that they are century families, that type of thing. The other was, and you hit it on the nail, Dr. Dream, Mm -hmm. they were also threatened if they said anything it would go very hard on them, including the possibility of prison or because of wartime, there was a suggestion that they might be considered enemy agents, and you know what the punishment is for that. Right, treason, right. So, Harry, can you tell us a little bit about what your bigger picture perspective is on all this? If you were to come up with just a philosophy that you sort of work by or – you know, what conclusions have you drawn, basically, from everything that you've been investigating and experiencing, just about the UFOs, ET races, and all that kind of stuff? Well, um, Laura, I didn't really expect a lot of these side issues, but this is what comes with doing professional research. And you start uncovering things all over the place. My perspective is, well, it was still was, was there or was there not a UFO crash here? And I, with the last interview I did with the, which was with the, the last surviving Air Force man, he, he said something in passing. This man had talked about these things sort of obliquely, directly at times and obliquely at other times. But because I had known him for a number of years, He just flat said something, but even then it was indirect, and it was a clue that was a ground landmark. I had a 448-square-mile area to search, and I had narrowed to 20, but that's still too big for I'm just one person. And um, that led me to the site. It also led me to confrontations that would follow and visitations that would follow that I did not expect either. And not only that, my consulting engineer having the same thing. He lives in Lake Havasu City, which is 75 miles south of me. But philosophically looking at the whole thing, uh, there was all of this secret information being kept by the original, I call them old old time or old town, without meaning any disrespect, but the original people that were Kingman, I think, the Kingman area. And they kept this sealed up with the exception of the only one that I found who was ostracized, and that's plenty enough reason in their thinking not to be doing the same thing because it's like a brotherhood uh, where uh, you keep everything at the round table, so to speak. And then came the exaggerators who dreamed up a lot of variations of the story, and that was based loosely on the 65-page or pieces of the 65-page interview that 
had been done with Arthur Stansel, and which, by the way, I, I obtained an annotated copy of that in 1970, uh, from 1978, meaning that the Mojave County historian that got it at the time spoke with the interviewer and to clarify things and hand there are handwritten notes on it so that I can understand or anybody could understand it better, which helped me a lot. And I can tell you without much concern at this point, because of all the work I've done, that there were four alien crew members standing outside of an undamaged flying saucer. It was no longer an unidentified flying object. It was a machine. It sat without unblemished with the hatch open and unflyable when the recovery team arrived and were stunned because about then, in 1953, George Powell produced a movie called War of the Worlds with Gene Berry and a few other top actors and actresses in the movie, and it was Martians, and they had suckers on the end of their fingers, and they were about three and a half to four feet high with one big eye and uh, multicolored. And so what they were looking at was a stunning event because what they saw were four humans. And that's exactly how they were described to me by this elderly, retired Lieutenant Colonel Air Force experimental pilot and fighter pilot and all of these things in his career. And he still with with a shortness of breath almost, said they were human, and he meant humanoid. Very subtle differences. They were about five feet high. They were in what we would think of as jumpsuits. They were not in spacesuits or had helmets, and they were immediately transferred to the facility at Groom Lake because they were top secret. You can't have aliens or even enemy crew members standing around, uh, and then the whole place was sealed off. I Other things that I found to kind of add to this was that the sheriff, the, there's no way you can hide. There was only two roads in and out of Kingman. There was no way you could hide, even in the middle of the night, moving heavy army equipment through the little town on the way to where this thing went down about 16 miles southeast of Kingman, and the sheriff and the undersheriff drove out to this place, which was an old road that went from a wagon road to sort of a road but never paved in 1912. And they got out there, and the whole thing was screened off, and military police were stationed, and they couldn't get through. And the sheriff of Mojave County, Arizona, spent 15 minutes trying to get past them to talk to someone in command on the ground with what, whatever was going on, and they were refused and turned away. But that wasn't the only time the sheriff was involved in, <clears throat> involved in this. So it's, it sounded more and more like something was really going on. This was promptly followed on the tw from the 18th landing to the 22nd when a craft came down also inside the Kingman Radar Triangle. It, it was going to crash into the desert floor. There was a large rocky butte infested with snakes that had been up several, multiple times. 
and it was too low to clear it and ricochet off the top. I know how far it went. I know the direction it went. I have found the scar where it hit the top of this round butte and the impact place where it hit. Described to me by the same recovery team member because the Kingman craft, the one that landed, had gone by in the dark hours before this thing came down and crashed in, on the morning of the 22nd. Two of the crew members were severely injured and taken to Nellis Air Force Base where they died. The other two were shaken up but taken immediately to Groom Lake. And the craft basically didn't need the same precise handling as the Kingman, the first landing, because the bottom was ripped out of it from hitting a rocky butte. The third one happened on the 24th, and in front of... 15 witnesses so far that I have been able to narrow down saw this thing hit the north face of the Wallapai Mountain, and then it became a newspaper subject to some degree because it set the mountain on fire. It's forested. As the file crew went up on the mountain, a Forest Service worker came upon, at the scene of the fire, came upon two men who he took into custody because he thought that it was arson caused. There was no lightning. The weather was perfect the entire week. Our records go back to 1901 as far as everything concerning weather and temperature and wind and all of that. And a newspaper reporter, 1953 style, this is back when there was no television here, very few telephones. They were trying to get radio, and most of it came in on skip at nighttime, what what there was of it. So it's like, forget every kind of technology as far as communication we have today. didn't <laughs> exist then. But there was a newspaper reporter, and he saw the forest worker go by, and what he wrote down is in the newspaper. And he called them two strange-looking men, and they were because they were crew members from the craft the other two deceased and the remains of the craft were removed promptly all of this in a convenient way because the recovery team was busy trying to get rid of the red lake craft that had crashed two days before these two strange looking men were taken to the mojave county 1910 courthouse which was one of the first cast-in-place concrete steel-reinforced buildings. The floors and ceilings were solid concrete, and the sheriff's office was there in the basement, in a place in the basement that was below grade, meaning below the surface of the ground outside. No windows or openings, only could be entered through two separately locked doors with four deputies inside, and the the, uh Forest Service worker arrived with the two strange-looking men and found out the sheriff was missing. So a deputy put both of these strange-looking men in what later became known as interrogation rooms. There were two. Put them in one of the rooms and locked it. No windows, no openings of any kind except the door they went through. The Forest Service worker sat down on an oak bench that is still there, Mm -hmm. and I say that still there because I went 
with a story that I found in documents to the head of security from Mojave County Court. And this area of the building has been off limits for three decades. And I described the interior of the old sheriff's office, and without saying a word, he came out of his office, and then he said, follow me, and he shut down two security systems and rearmed them as we went through and took me to the very place this happened. And it was that my descriptions were perfectly correct. I had never seen it, and he allowed me to photograph that, and that is also what I have that I'm offering in, uh, by DVD. But these two strange-looking men were in the room. There were three deputies left in the office. One went to get the sheriff. And these two strange-looking men were, in fact, behind three locked doors because there are two locked doors just to get in the sheriff's office. The sheriff arrived. He was briefed, told the deputy to open the door. He opened the door, and they stepped in. And everybody that's listening needs to know that with solid concrete, completely encapsulated this room, those two strange-looking men were no longer there. They were gone. (laughs) And that, yeah, and that is also in the newspaper. Oh, didn't I mention to you earlier that someone said they had investigated newspapers for 100 miles around Kingman in all directions and right. never found anything. Uh-huh. Yeah. What a coincidence. Want to hear another one? On the day the bus with scientists left Phoenix and a model General Motors 3301 40 passenger bus that I have a photo of and know the name of the driver of, the day that that bus would leave, Five minutes flight time away from where the the Kingman UFO sat on the ground with the recovery people working on it to get it ready for the scientists coming and then get it out of there that night. Five minute flight time away, three men are out looking at a, sp- a place that has a spring where they're going to have a youth fishing derby. And they're out checking things, and one of them looks up because it's a natural thing because two of them were pilots. One of them trained under contract military pilots in three bases in Arizona. And they looked up, and there were eight UFOs, one on each side of the six, and uh, and they were hovering like they were guarding. And the other six were doing dogfight maneuvers. And they stood there and watched these UFOs for over an hour. And the people on the ground, the Air Force people and engineers on the ground with the Kingman craft had no idea that five minutes away there were UFOs practicing attack maneuvers. Wild. Harry, I'm yeah. I'm absolutely on on the edge of my seat, and I love I just love the stories. I love how you've done the research. I got to ask you a question now. You know, um, we see you at these conferences, and and you're out there sharing all this information. Are you um, experiencing um, any uh, energies against you getting this information out there? Are you experiencing anything odd um 
you know, any sort of undermining uh, your activities or your reputation or anything? Yes, 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 and yes. <laughs> I, I want to hear all about it. Tell us, because um, I also know it's probably not a good idea to to, to mess with Harry Drew. So I, I want to hear the story. Yeah. Oh <laughs> uh, yes. Um, my first when I found the landmark for the landing site, I was elated, and believe me, I've I've driven over 400 miles in a Jeep Wrangler in first gear. <laughs> you know, and it's like, oh, tiresome. Uh, it's, and and I film, I have hundreds and hundreds of hours of video and backing up out of roads that I can't go down because it had to be a place where this bus could go. And a, and a it was a 1951-52 model GM 3301 on rail tires with inner tubes and, and there was no paved road anywhere. In fact... Highway old AZ-93, Highway 93 going south out of Kingman was a graded sand road all the way to what is called Wickiup. And from Wickiup to Wickenburg was a wagon road in 1950, and they were trying to build a road in 1950. And by the time the bus came, they were on a dirt road at least instead of a wagon road, but it hadn't been paved. So uh, all of these things are, are relevant in the sense as far as putting everybody in perspective. This was not super highway era. And I went out to this, and when I found it, it's like there's no cell phone signal. There's no traffic there. It is dangerous. We have the 11 of the 15 poisonous creatures that Arizona has. They're here. And the one that has my attention the most is the Mojave Green that has the blood coagulant of a rattlesnake. It is a rattlesnake, but it also has a neurotoxin like a cobra. And that makes, if you're out, because I go by myself, and nobody should do that. But I've always done that, and as I'm getting older, maybe I should think about that now. But, but So here it is, and what I find is I'm, I'm the next person there since the Air Force left 60 years ago. And so this isn't like Roswell that's been walked on and dug in for 65 years. It was left just the way they drove away. And I have people say, well, the Air Force, to be a violation of protocol to leave anything behind. Oh, really? Wow. Not true. And it really isn't. I mean, you go back even to the whole 1800s forts and stuff, and it was protocol then. But as a historian or archaeologist, we go right straight, we look for a dump where they dump their things. They might be brand new cannons they threw in the ground because they didn't want to take them. So I found, I, I drove over to it with my Jeep. I knew the directions from the interview and a description from the, the uh, person with the 65 page report done on an interview. And I instantly saw where the fuel kitchen was, and then I saw the bivouac area, and I walked right straight over to where the UFO had landed. Later in this past year, in the soil porosity and radiation tests and a lot of other things I've done, where it sat is the background radiation is about five times as normal. It's not serious. You walk 50, 60 feet away, and it's back to the background radiation normal again. So it maybe had a radiator spill or something. I don't know. Um, but anyway, and, and I spent six and a half hours there. Nobody, never saw anybody, nothing. And so I had to go back, of course. And I went back with a consulting engineer that I took away from a very busy schedule because he developed the 
the most state-of-the-art flight control system that's on Earth right now that was used for the ROV and it was with James Cameron in the Mariana Trench dive about 11 months ago. Hmm. And uh, he stopped what he was doing for me, and he went actually to both sites, the landing and the crash site that I'd already found by then. And that was when I was approached by the military or someone that looked like the military, including the latest kind of short automatic weapons they have. These guys come up out of nowhere, and I called out to the consultant uh, to get down. We were both armed because we're in the middle of a place filled with javelina. It starts with a J, and they're like a wild boar, and, they're, and they, are, they don't like people too much, and they come in the brush and come and get you, and they can tear you up pretty bad. And then there's always something else, because I already knew three people have died not far from there, and two are still missing as of this moment, and it's been years. So this is according to old-timers. I have no personal knowledge of these people. I've never met them. They knew who they were. Anyway, um, so up comes this military vehicle. There's no I'm former U.S. Army, and they had no identification on their battle dress uniforms. I couldn't see, like, any, any regiment or branch or division or the name bar, nothing. But what I did pay attention to as they pulled up is that they both had these black, short, and I don't know what they are called now. They're not, they aren't M16s. They're a shorter automatic rifle. And they were holding them, and the butt was sitting on the floor, so the barrel straight up. And the driver pulled up, and he said to me, what's going on? And I'm near the window where he stopped so he could talk to me, and then, he, and then he pointed his finger at me, and he said, what are you doing here? And he didn't say it in a friendly way, and I, I stepped back away from the door toward the back of the vehicle to get out of the line of fire because I didn't know what was next. And then I said, like I was completely brain dead, oh, are you guys hunting and he turned and looked at the other soldier sitting in the passenger side, and I suspect that he rolled his eyes like this guy's a goofball. And without a word, they drove off going the same direction that I'm convinced is where the underground base is. And the road ends, and they never came back, and we were there all day. We were doing low-level photography with six cameras and a drone. That was why the engineer was there in part, or mainly, uh, so that I could look at the ground terrain, because I can read terrain. It helps me find places, ancient sites, as well as more contemporary sites. But it could be seen better than anything like uh, where you look on satellite pictures where you can't really get down close. We were doing stuff at 30 feet off the ground and 100 feet and 300 feet off the ground, uh, different times of day, so you get different shadows and lighting and all of that. And, of course, I have all of those, and that helped me identify some of their places and was a big help at the red light crash site. It, it actually showed me where, the, where it hit the ground at, I mean, after it ricocheted off the, the butte. So. But, so we both go home from, from being up at the first landing site, I'm backed up just a slight bit. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. And we both come home at the end of the day after the Army guys were there and our work was done. And my engineer went back home to Lake Havasu City. And I was doing a four-mile walk around the interior part of my horse property out here uh, by Kingman. And I was finishing up, and I was starting to walk back, and I look over, and I have mountains on about 280 degrees of around me where I live. And there was a big UFO hovering about six miles away above a hill. And I stood and watched it for about five minutes, and I thought, I'm getting a camera. And I went and got a camera, my pocket camera, and I went out in my backyard. And went my backyard, looking north, there's nothing for 35 miles. It's desert. And I looked back over by the mountain, and it was gone. And I thought, well, shoot, I've missed it. And then I looked a little more to the right. It had cut the distance in half. It was about three miles away. And it was stopped, and it was hovering, and it was about 400 feet off the ground. And this is daytime. Wow. And this thing swung around, and it had brilliant light underneath it, brilliant. And it began to slide uh, kind of in a horseshoe shape out around the back of my property where it came right alongside of me and straight above me, and I had to squint from the lights, and it was... Uh, I didn't know what it was until uh, it got a little more to my left, and then I saw sky between the the, the brilliant areas at the back, what were the back of two arms of a triangle. It was a huge triangle. Then I could see the skin and everything. This thing was a big, some kind of big machine. It's the way I perceive it. It was in no hurry, and then it and it just moved slowly away, headed south by southwest towards California and progressively gained speed and it was gone. I came back to my house. My phone rang, the engineer, and he said, you're not going to believe this. I said, what is it? He said, I had a triangle UFO hovering over my house about an hour ago. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) That was the beginning of a lot of things that have happened to me. I've never seen orbs in my life. Not really, you know, not anything I've ever filmed, and, but I do now. And my security system and cameras get them. I have them forming, and it reminds me, if you beg my pardon here, the Wizard of Oz of 1939 and the sparkles in the sky above Dorothy and an orb forms and a, and a good witch named Glinda comes down to give her slippers or something like that, the shoes. Mm-hmm. And I have security camera film. It's not ever been altered by anybody. It's the real deal of an orb forming outside my house. And it starts out with sparkles like something from Star Trek transporter film. And then it begins to take on density, becomes opaque, and then becomes a sphere, and then gets enough density that something behind it is blocked. You can't see it. And then, poof, instantly disappears. And it turns on the camera. It turns on some other security sensors. It has it has that kind of thing. Of course, I've had my big screen TV and my bedroom come on at 4 o'clock in the morning. Things are going bump in the night, and I have them out back, UFOs, as many as 15, and they land. 
Wow. So, Harry, and I have I have good pictures of them too. Wow. So, what do you see? You know, if it, it just for the human race and just all this information and everything that's coming down, where, where do you see it all going? And what what um what direction do you think is the most dominant that can give you an idea of maybe what where what's to come? I guess in the field of ufology. Well, uh, there's a lot, you know, it's like I'm picking up a lot of things, too, sensing things, the, the messages, I guess. And what I'm, what I'm trying to do, what I was trying to do is provide solid evidence of something happening. And, by the way, the chief investigator for National MUFON states that my findings can't be disputed. I really have found a site with datable things identifiable things at the landing site. There's no question they were there, and there's no question with so many witnesses it was an unidentified, they called them disks. They saw disks. We call them UFOs and think of them as flying saucers. But at the time, the, the witnesses were calling them disks. Even the newspaper was calling them disks. But I was looking to find out if it happened, and then... You know, how many were killed, if it was one crew member, if they were three feet tall, uh, or or they were ten feet tall, all the different stories you hear. And uh, it wasn't a disappointment in any way to find out all the things I've found. And what I'm trying to do is share that with everyone so in an age where everybody is in competition about how many lights they see in the sky, you know, one night you, you get, and the news media said somebody saw six lights. And then somebody else, somewhere else, says, I saw 12. And somebody said, well, shoot, that's not much. I, I saw 36. And verifying it and saying it aren't the same thing. And so this is very old. And I thought, if you can go back retro and establish some, some validity and truth to this, and which I have done, and I have completely, uh, without meaning to, ruined the stories of many of the exaggerators, because anybody can now go see this. You know, I'd say where it is. You can go look it up. You can go find it. You can go see it physically. And and they were just telling stories, um, you know, to be part of what's going on. But where does it go? Well, it tells me, along with the latest finding from the Hadron Super Collider, which was looking for the God Particle, and they found something. And what struck me was more important was the incidental mentioning of verifying there were side parallel dimensions. Do you know what that means? Tell us. That there are, that something, we, some type of instrument detected other dimensions. You know, all of a sudden, you don't need necessarily to have long, deep space trips and your UFO, you just pass from one one dimensional plane to the next. Einstein predicted such was probable, and this and that was just an incidental thing. But what does it mean? I'm being visited here, and I can tell you from the craft that I see, and I'm seeing three different kinds. One is a mothership, and I've seen two of them. I photographed one of them. I have that on my Facebook page taken with a pocket camera with no zoom, which will tell you how close it is, because it was right over my house. 
and it just sat there. And one time, it sat so long, I began to wonder if I was seeing things. And, and my, I have friends who have stayed with me, friends who have lived with me, friends who come and visit me, and they go out back and they watch these, and they're like a mile away or 400 yards away. Mm-hmm. They and they land, and there's two different kind of smaller craft, and you can see them when they're closer, or they are a light, you know, a pretty good sized light. They they are fluorescent. That's what I'm seeing with lights. And if they're airplanes, they're the most fantastic airplanes we've ever had, because they do incredible things that defy. Uh, any kind of VTOL uh, aircraft I've ever heard of, like a Harrier or something, and the and the speed is incredible, or the fact they can hover. One that I had hovered for a long time, I took a movie camera out, set it on a tripod, and I thought after an hour I'll take it in and I can look at it because that'll be enough time for the star field motion to show up. The stars stay where they are, the Earth is rotating, but it gives us the illusion in film. And this thing was still sitting right in the same place on film, which meant it was above the surface of the Earth and it was hovering. And But it doesn't stay there all the time. I, I mean, it comes and goes. So on harry.drew.35 Facebook, go down through my material, and you will actually see two photos taken with a simple Olympus pocket camera right from my backyard of a mothership and three UFOs flying uh, not very far up. So what does it mean? I don't know. I could tell you things (laughs) that are a little bit strange, and I don't know if I should do that. (laughs) <laughs> That's what we're here you know, for. Have, so we're no strange, to, strange things. <laughs> yeah, my science background is is kind of uh, there are reasons. I you know I have to maintain my credibility, and I say that to everyone because everything I've done is credible. It's by the book, the book that's not used by most of the people doing research, and um, you know I started. I backed up all the way to 1856 and came forward so I could just find out where the roads were. And I can tell you things like the three men who watched the dogfights. That whole story is on the front page of the Prescott, not Prescott, but Prescott Daily Courier. It's on the front page along with a gigantic clear across the top flying saucers return. And then the entire story that I'm telling you about that was, and of course that's within that 100 mile perimeter that the expert exaggerator said he had checked. <laughs> and yeah, so it's kind of tongue in cheek. You know, it's like the problem is I don't want everybody to believe everything they read on the internet. Please don't do that. <laughs> Please take a look and be be skeptical about accepting stories at face value. This is very important, and the ramifications of this, as I mentioned, are that some of the other stories, earlier stories especially, that were just dusted off have everything to do with the Robertson Commission and a deliberate thing 
that the CIA, like Mission Impossible, the old TV show, and the movies, I guess, um, said, you know, if Carter captured, the secretary will disavow. The CIA made it very clear that they didn't want to be connected in any way in any reports. Mm. But they but they wanted this done. And surprisingly, in such a short time, this panel came up with exactly what they wanted. You know, and that's been applied now since well for 60 years that's like mind control or uh you know psychological warfare on the people so that anyone who sees a ufo really sees a ufo is a wacko right so if you haven't seen one and for anyone who has it is profound very profound and there's no doubt what you're looking at and today we have many more technologically advanced craft but let me tell you in 1953 no way right nobody could do what we were saying yeah now now harry let me ask you um here we are first uh couple of months into 2013 um earlier in um in the 21st century uh big buzzword disclosure Everyone thinking that disclosure was going to happen. I can't tell you how many, um, you know, false projections of when that was going to happen. What's Harry's? What What is your take, Harry, on disclosure? Will it ever happen? Or you know, um, where, where, where are you at with this? You're You're on the front lines of all of it. Yes, and you're right. The buzzword, and I thought it had died finally, but it's coming back again. Um, it's been, what, 10 to 12 years mm-hmm. that disclosure was right around the corner and all of these things are going to happen and be done. And I've, I think if anybody were just to take a moment and realize what's been going on, there's been disclosure. <laughs> and, the, and, and I just told everyone about the Central Intelligence, NSA, the Intelligence Advisory Committee, the United States government, wanted that stopped. The U.S. government has no reason whatsoever, in my opinion, to tell, to tell us anything. They don't have to tell us anything, and I think it's going to take multiple craft with multiple ETs landing in the middle of Yankee Stadium or <laughs> down by the Cow Palace in the Bay Area or someplace in full daylight on a weekend at a big event before they can't hide it. Uh, um, and But then why should they do that anyway? I don't know. It's like how friendly would they be treated? And if they are, in fact, already working with our governments, then there might be part of some kind of contractual arrangement, but I doubt that. I, don't, I, think, they're, I think they're free agents, and they come in, in variety, just like we do on the planet as the human species. I don't have a problem with that. Uh, the ones that I'm aware of are humanoid. I'm not aware of reptilians and uh, the, uh, well, I don't remember what to call them. They're 10 foot tall, whoever they are. Uh, I'm not aware of any of those. I'm not aware of any that are three feet tall, uh, leprechauns or something. <laughs> but I, I don't know uh, because... I'm I focused on this thing, but I think disclosure has been hyped too. And so that 
the, I've heard many, many speakers and, and many angles about this, and none of them have panned out. And I think, in part, as I said, disclosure has happened. I'm having, I don't report any of my land, the landings that happen or hovering outback or overflies that happen as much as three times a week where I live. They aren't airplanes. There's no way they can be aircraft. And I don't know if it's just because I kind of have an agreement with them that's a silent one or not. And there are people listening into this right now who have been with me and have seen them. And um, I have things turn off and on in my house. We're, you know, we're really strange things. You hear things at night. But when you have them in the daytime and clear sight, there's no denying it's going on. So and it changes so it, right? I've had people say, well, the triangle's military. Not this one. <laughs> right. So. so, Harry, what what's up with you? Um, what What's next? What's on the agenda? Um, do you have uh, the continuation of... of this information, but but do you have something else um, on the list to um, to share with us? Yes, I do. In fact, uh, coming up as far as what I'm doing, um, I will be at the International UFO Conference at Scottsdale, actually Fountain Hills, out at Fort Mojave. Or I'm sorry, not it's Fort McDowell. I have a friend in Fort McCarthy. Uh At Fort McDowell, beyond Scottsdale, east of Scottsdale, the International UFO Conference, which is February 27th through March 3rd. Uh, I will be there with Antonio, who is the owner of Outventures and does top secret tours. Uh, go to top, topsecrettours.com, which is a Southwest tour, which I am part of, and they come here, and I take his group and guide them to key places involved in the Kingman UFO story. And then I take them out to the Red Lake food tank crash site, and which is amazing because I've had, I've done this already. And the people, when they get there and realize where they are and they've already been shown where they're headed and what's to expect, they gasp still. It's, takes your breath away because you're actually where one really impacted and you can tell that it happened. You can see with your own eyes that it happened. Then, that, in fact, they do a tour and they come through on the 18th of April, and, uh, but they'll be starting off over by Snowflake, Arizona, for anybody out there that wants to get in on a tour, uh, get, a, get a hold of Antonio, Tony at TopSecretTours.com. Then I am a speaker and will be on a panel at the New Living Expo, April 26 to 28, in the Bay Area. I have some other invitations right now, um, tentatively uh, through June, which I can't, conf I won't mention because I haven't, I don't have the confirmation back on them yet, and I haven't signed a contract. In the meantime, I will introduce two new DVDs for the first time together at, at the International UFO Conference. One is from my presentation at the Bay Area UFOCon 
In September of 2012, it's just now been turned into where it is a presentable presentation. I have before me right now sitting on a counter three prototype pictorial books that I'm going to bring along to get a public reaction to, and it's a departure away from what is called hidden in plain sight, the King of the Crashers, to seven days in May because this all happened in seven days, and when the ETs figured out what was knocking, whatever was happening to their craft to knock them down, they fixed it, just like we're testing the, the ion batteries and the, the new 767 to find out why they're overheating, and it grounded everything. There were no more crashes after, after that week. They just stopped. So they found what it was and fix what it was so that the radar wouldn't be an interference, maybe turned on something or turned something off <laughs> in the craft. So, but I have more field exploration to do. Uh, I have um, a book that I'm writing. I'm about 30 pages out on a, a, a woman photographer in the Victorian era in the Pacific Northwest in the 1880s. I am a historian. I've been writing and, and have history uh, works and current events at the time, anyway, published for now for 40 years. So I've been around a, a little while, and I'll also be doing a, a documentary uh, that's in regard to the UFOs here. I have some hundreds of hours of film and uh, thousands of hours, uh, thousands of photographs to pick from and interviews. And ultimately, I'm looking at possibly uh, doing something with a new digital system for getting this out in uh, a very large number. And I've also been talked to about possibly getting this into a, a big screen documentary or something. So wow. this is important. It's the real deal. And this this isn't what I all set out to do. But after six years and all of the analysis and everything being done, using people like that help uh, the Mariana Trench Dive, you know, these aren't, these aren't amateurs, nor am I. I'm a professional and did it just like I was doing any other project uh, with the museum uh, or museums. And I'm elated to find so many facts that they're virtually overwhelming and there will be a large book that will come out sometime toward the end of the year about the whole thing but the pictorial version will give everybody a fast very clear and precise opportunity to see what a the craft looked like and all of the details that i've just covered here and more so but i am i am speaking different places so well, Harry, and what's your give, give give the website so our listeners can get to you? My website is www.kingmanufocrashes.com. Well, Harry, we really appreciate you being on our broadcast this evening. Um, it's uh, it, it it's great what you're doing, and I love the standard that you're holding yourself to. Um, and it means it means everything to to get this information out, but to get the information out that's been put through you know a process, and and you've done that um, at the highest level, and 
Um, we just really appreciate you, and, and thank you so much. Thank you so much, Harry, for coming on. We really enjoyed it. Thank you both. I appreciate it.